Welcome to the mixtape with Scott. This is Scott Cunningham. I'm the host. This week, it's a real honor and a pleasure of mine to introduce you to a man that you either have heard of or you haven't heard of. I guess that's true uh, but for everyone, but this feels even more true. Uh, Dr. Nick Cox. Uh, Dr. Nick Cox is a, uh, a legend uh, for many of us that are uh, heavy users and longtime users of the statistical software Stata. Uh, Nick has been uh, someone who has been uh, a, a major contributor to the community of people that use that software and uh, has done so both in his production of um, user-created packages, editing the Stata Journal, and uh, also managed or being a, one of the moderators on the longstanding state of listserv. I, I wanted to talk to Nick um, for a couple of reasons. One was um, uh, I, this podcast is an oral history of uh, the economics profession. And uh, the more I've thought about it, Stata, ironically, I think actually is part of the story of economics. People can laugh at that, but for people my age um, and really even younger, when you think about the shift that occurred in the latter part of the sort of towards the closing end of the 20th century, I guess for about a quarter of a, of a century there as the, as the field, as the field of economics just began to become uh, increasingly empirical of which was helped both by advances in microeconometrics, uh, computing, but also software that required economists with skills in uh, in um, skills in uh, econometrics as well as programming to to help create that. And we had an interview uh, recently with uh, William Green where we sort of learned a little bit about that. But the Stata software was really uh, really important part of uh, empirical microeconomists um, being able to do their work. And uh, it was a full, and so Nick was an important part of that. It, but it's, it's more than that. The, it was more than that. Um, I've always looked up to Nick uh, for complicated reasons. I would watch him on the state of listserv. And I, could, I knew that there was a tendency on all online communities for them to kind of have commons problems, for lack of a better word. There was always a version of tragedy of the commons that exists on online communities. Um, they get overrun with trolls. And so in order to create something that actually creates value, it usually requires a person to go first. And uh, that's what I usually call it. A person who goes first, that tries to set the tone and uh, kind of create the institutions that are going to allow for productive discourse. And <clears throat> Nick was someone that I saw that did that day in, day out, constantly communicating to people on this listserv. And as a result of that, just allowed it to produce a lot of knowledge and knowledge sharing. And I really took it to heart. I really took it to heart that that was what I wanted to somehow figure out a way to do in the profession itself. I wanted to find out a way that I could sort of help do that. And I tried to do that um, in my own ways. Nick was someone that I kind of watched. He was, he, he was himself 
And I've always thought that the production of these public goods and the production of science itself is much more complicated in today than, it, than it's ever been. And it requires people like that. Um, people that go first, people that help create the institutions and the tools that allow us to do our work. And I, I, but also the just creation of community um, is important and it's important to me. So uh, I'm very excited to have him and to introduce him to you. Uh, this was a really meaningful interview for me. It went on. And so I requested with Nick if we could do a two-part interview, part one and part two. So this is going to be part one, and then later we'll next week we'll do part two. I hope you enjoy it. Please tell everybody about the podcast if you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. This week is really special in the story of uh, empirical microeconomics, it's, but it's really just also the story of so many fields. I have with me um, Dr. Nick Cox from the University of Durham. Is that is that right, Nick? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay. Nick, so tell me tell me your title and it it's is it the and you can tell me who pays your paycheck? Uh well, it's just uh doctor if anyone wants to use that and uh it's the University of Durham. Absolutely. Durham. I'm an employee, have been an employee for uh almost 50 years. Yeah. And uh uh well, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. Fine. Okay. Well, before we get started, I wanted to do a little icebreaker. Um, tell me a vacation that you took as a kid with your family, whether it was you or little. Well, yeah, I say as a kid. T tell me a vacation that you took as a kid with your family that you still think about from time to time. Oh, right. Uh, well, of course, it was uh, the late Stone Age or whatever, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I was brought up uh, on Merseyside, which you may have heard of, uh, opposite Liverpool, which you've probably heard of. Yeah. And that's about, uh, I don't know, 20 miles away from the uh, Welsh border. So we used to go into Wales quite a lot and go to the seaside and things like that. So that was pretty standard stuff. Um, we never went very far as a family uh, for all sorts of reasons, mostly money. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, what my parents liked to do was basically sort of go into the country and walk around a bit. Uh, they weren't great for hills or mountains. That was more what uh, my brother and I picked up a bit later. Uh, but they certainly liked scenery and <laughs> having a picnic in the open air. And that's about it, really. Um, fairly mundane. What would your, what'd your parents do for a living? Okay, well, my father did all sorts of different things. Uh, what he did most of all was uh, sell fertilizers to farmers. Mm. And uh, or rather, he sort of supervised people who sold fertilizers to farmers. Mm. So he was called a sales representative. Uh, with great inflation, he'd probably be some sort of probably called some sort of manager if he was still doing it now. Uh, Sixty years later, uh, he left school about age sixteen in nineteen twenty-nine, I think, which. Every economist will know it was not a terribly good time to leave school, but he he sort of worked in various things, but mostly in sales. 
Mm. Uh, my mother worked as a kind of uh, accounting assistant, uh, although she, uh, you know, she took time out to be in. I think in the U.S. you'd say a homemaker. Yeah. Uh, it was a time when, uh, once you were married, a woman was expected to just stop, <laughs> which yeah. is, of course, pretty somewhere between ridiculous and obnoxious by most of our standards now. But that's what was expected when she got married, which was 45. She didn't go back to work uh, much later on, uh, again, doing things like accounting, keeping the books for charities, actually. Mm, mm. And you had one, and you grew up in, did you say you grew up in Liverpool? Well, I grew up across the river from Liverpool in a little town called Bebbington. Mm. Uh, and I went to school, secondary school in Birkenhead, which some people may have heard of. Um, the trivium that not many people know is that Birkenhead Park was the model, supposedly, for Central Park in New York. Mm. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> not many wow. people have heard of Birkenhead Park, but a lot of people have heard of Central Park. And what's Liverpool uh, like for a kid? I mean, if you're across a river, does that mean you get to go to Liverpool frequently or is it? separated yeah we we'd go to liverpool for big shopping you know buy some major item or uh cultural things concerts mm -hmm. um it, it it uh well 60s we're talking about really uh deindustrialization was biting pretty hard but certain things were vibrant uh the thing most people have probably heard of is uh, the beatles yeah. other people like that and we, we we were aware of that. I never went to a concert or anything by them, but uh, you know that was that was something we were aware of. Uh, the Mersey Beat, and you know certain poets and so forth. Hmm. Did the music? And scene... I can even do a I can even do a passable imitation of a Merseyside accent, but I'm not going to try that in public. <laughs> um, I don't know what my accent sounds like to you. Probably sort of British neutral or something like that, but. Uh, yes, yes, British neutral. I can I, I can understand you. So I'm sure my accent sounds bizarre. I'm from Mississippi. Um, you. So what did you and your brother? You said your brother is he sort of a similar cl close in age? Yeah, my brother three years older. Uh, we were lucky enough to go to a fairly academic school. Okay. Uh, my parents, as I'm implied, didn't go to university, but we both went to university and both did PhDs and both went into academia. What kind of stuff did you guys like to do when you were little, you and your brother? Did y'all, were y'all close when you were little? Pretty close. Yeah. Um, well, we, we were right on the edge of a, of the urban area really. And so mm. you just had to walk five minutes and you'd be in fields and woods and so forth. Mm. So you'd mess around a bit and even play football and cricket in a very rough sort of way. Uh, we were both very bookish, I think it's fair mm. to say. What kind of books were y'all, what kind of, what kind of bookish kids were you? Oh, well, all sorts, all sorts. I mean, there was a culture, well, certainly a family culture, but we weren't unique in it by any means. Culture of going to the library every Saturday and getting out books and then taking them back the next week. And, uh, there's certainly books in the house, but, um, uh, it was more reliance on a public library, which was pretty good, pretty yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I think they've sort of morphed into uh, you know more kind of information centers where <laughs> you know you get well you have access to computers in public libraries and 
people come in out of the cold uh, sometimes, but uh, uh, they were they were a good basis for uh, you know reading novels, uh, teaching yourself a lot of stuff, getting out nonfiction books. Yeah, you ever gone back to that library um, so, that you would go to? You ever gone back to well, that I mean, I'm, I'm, library? No, it'd be interesting to see what it was like. Um, I think the ceilings are a lot smaller than you remember. I did it recently. <laughs> I was like, what? This is a small building. It felt huge when I was a kid. Well, it was uh, it was good enough to, what can I remember? They subscribed to Nature, meaning Nature Magazine, which, uh, oh. okay, uh, some people will know what that means, uh, but probably yeah. a very easy translation is the British trans British equivalent of Science Magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So this is a, this is a small civic library, but they took the top uh, Science Magazine. Uh, mm. It was just there for people to read, and they had lots of good, good reference books and so on and so forth. So from a little um, kid, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say I was. I don't remember using the word nerd or geek when I was 13. It may have existed, but it wasn't a word we used. Uh, there were other words as well, which weren't really rude, but uh, what do people used to say? SWAT. Yes, a SWAT. A SWAT was, you know, a kid who, you know, studied fairly hard in school and took studies seriously. And So you were, <laughs> you were that. You worked really hard as a student. Uh, really hard. Well, no, I just did what I was supposed to do, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> which was not completely usual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, you know, I did my homework conscientiously and uh, took most subjects seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, so was it science? Cause you've mentioned science and outdoors a few times. I'm curious, were you, uh, as a young kid sort of gravitating towards the natural sciences? No, not really. Um, I was interested in most academic subjects, and uh, I, I guess retrospectively, it was largely a matter of the best teachers having the most effect. Yeah. Um, uh, but, well, I mean, the way to summarize it, I think, is that uh, we specialized early. And, you know, the British, British uh, school education is one of the best in the world and in some ways one of the worst in the world mm. uh, a way in which it's bad is uh students encouraged to specialize early or obliged to specialize early right anyway from age 15 i was focusing on geography economics and mathematics and the way that works was uh geography was my top subject that was my favorite subject and i think i had a sense then i was going to studied at university i didn't have ambitions beyond that at that point uh mathematics was something i wanted to keep going and there was a sense that geography was becoming more mathematical so i got strong advice that i was happy to take to keep going with maths as long as i could mm. and so that, that that was quite well taught at least as far as i was concerned and we were getting mm. into calculus and a lot of calculus, a lot of algebra, a lot of trigonometry, a lot of geometry. Essentially, no statistics, by the way. Mm. Uh, I don't think in the mathematics we were doing, we did anything more than averages. Mm. But in something like geography, we were we were certainly drawing diagrams and so forth. And some of that has lingered in what I do. Yeah. 
Um, economics I did partly because uh, it sounded quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did it partly because uh, I wanted to do physics, and that just didn't fit in the timetable. Mm. In fact, the school was stretching it quite a lot to uh, allow people to do geography and mathematics, but it so happened that there were a bunch of us who wanted to do geography and mathematics. And the headmaster was married to a mathematician, and he had a uh, awe and respect for mathematics, and he just told people, this should happen, this should happen, you know, rearrange the timetable so that you know, half a dozen of us could do geography and mathematics. But the only way that could be done was by the third subject of three that we were doing being either economics or history, and I went for economics. Oh. oh I couldn't that's... do physics. So if people, you know, uh, I'm imagining most people listening to this are economists, and if they're wondering, you know, how close was I to becoming an economist, the short answer is not much. <laughs> <laughs> But I, you know, little bits of econ- economics that I did uh, late in secondary school uh-huh. have helped make sense of what uh, economists do, or at least what I think they do. Right, right, right. You've spent your career around a lot of economists, though, it seems like. I want to get to that later, but uh, more than yeah, well, let's get to more, that later. Than, I think, more yeah. than most non-economists, it seems like you've had to talk to them a lot. Uh, that's probably true. We'll get to that later, I think, because yeah. we're not out of secondary school yet. We may need that's to right. speed up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, what did you, when you were kind of, we call it high school, the last before high school, secondary school, yeah, secondary yeah. school. Should we say secondary school. Yeah. So when you were moving towards the end of high uh, secondary school, was there, you know, you're going to specialize in geography at the university and mathematics too, but did you ever have at that time a vision of what kind of life you wanted to have after university? Uh, okay. Well, retrospectively, what I was interested in uh, does tally with what happened I can't say that I planned it at the time. I mean, I was certainly interested in the statistical side of geography mm. from an early age. Uh, and that was, in the first instance, that was a matter of, you know, liking playing around with data and drawing graphs and so forth. But I was on my own away from uh, away from formal studies. I was reading a little bit about stuff and I remember reading you know, paperback, uh, Penguin. Well, Penguin's still, yeah, Penguin's still a publisher that's going strong. And there was a Penguin paperback called Geography of World Affairs hmm. by a man called John Cole. And in 1965, they had something at the end. Oh, here's some stuff with uh, Spearman rank correlation. Hmm. And uh, I thought this was fun, you know, which is probably, not the usual reaction to learning about spearman rank correlation, but I did. Mm. And so I played around with this. And um, the other thing was I went to a conference much, much later, about 20 years later, and who was sitting opposite me at lunch? Uh, but John Cole, but I never got to sort of Shanghai him and say, you changed my life. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know, your little book got me into in statistics and geography. Other things would have got me interested in statistics and geography anyway, but uh, this little book did. So that was in secondary rank school. Correlation was the sort of thing I was playing around with. Very, very naive, but there you go. That was in secondary school, statistics yeah. and geography. Yeah. So you could have. You were already thinking. Um, 
there is going to be a way for me to do something with statistics, potentially, even though I'm going to specialize in geography. No, that's probably going beyond what I was thinking at the time. You know, I was, uh, I was drifting too, but yeah. You were drifting. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, my, my interests were sort of shifting left and right and, yeah, uh, I got quite interested in philosophy in a very amateur sort of way and some other stuff. Mm. I suppose some things became clear negatively. I mean, for example, I was I was useless at experiments uh, in science. So mm. that was something that, as it were, put me off science. I knew I wouldn't be very good at it. And I remember burning myself once and uh, spilling acid on myself once. Mm. Fortunately, what was uh, on the bottle called concentrated nitric acid or something of the sort was <laughs> nothing of the kind. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, the injury <laughs> might have been. Um, but I was now I was a you know okay let's let's uh, use one of your good words. I was a klutz in terms of uh, you know experiments. And so forth. I think that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I hope it's not was, rude. Is it rude? So, yeah, klutz. Clutch, clumsy. But it's not a rude word, is it? I mean, I, no, no. Those no, are one of those nice. Okay. Those are one of those nice words that are from a long time ago. That that I haven't heard in a long time. But yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm I'm using it to mean clumsy. Perhaps that's wrong. No, no, it is. No, it's like it just seems almost like I would see that kind of thing in old comic books, but I haven't heard it in a long time. Your oh, wow. skills, you your skills in science, they're not on the lab they're not in the lab that's that right kind no of... i was never i was never a good lab person i mean we did that until you know we did physics chemistry biology but experimentation was never my kind of thing what are professors telling you they're saying nick this is you got to get out of the lab you're going to kill yourself you oh gotta... no 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 what are they saying no, I mean, the only discouragement the only discouragement uh, i got was i was fooling around playing a bit of cricket and made a tough move and uh, the, the chief geography teacher was passing and he just shouted just keep to geography <laughs> so that was the only discouragement i got <laughs> so in college, he was positive about me i was top in geography so he, he was positive about me but yeah so wait where are you in college at this time uh when did i do my undergraduate degree you saying yes i went to cambridge you went to cambridge now what yeah. year is it what what year are you at, at cambridge 1970 to 73. So in 1970 to 73, did you, was there, what was your first kind of encounter with um, computers? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, uh, the, the, there was a big university computer. Uh, it didn't feature in our lives. Uh, there was a voluntary course um to learn some programming that wasn't part of the you know wasn't part of anything uh, graded or that contributed to your degree or anything like that there was a voluntary course and i did actually have a strong feeling that that was dangerous for me because i would find it compulsive okay so uh let's backtrack slightly between school and university i had a vacation job great vacation job working as just a scientific assistant. Uh-huh. Um, but it was on a project where um, people were measuring evaporation from a forest. And what they had was a big tower that went up through the trees and into the atmosphere. And they're measuring 
um, temperatures and moistures and things like that at different um, uh, heights, both within the trees and above the trees. Mm -hmm. And this was all being fed into a computer, a dedicated computer that was picking in, um, taking in the, the measurements uh, real time and yeah. doing calculations and spitting out uh, results. So I was aware of this computer you know, in yeah. the caravan, and I wasn't manipulating it. I was just the, the least important person on the whole project, just as a vacation job. Right. 12 pounds a week, more or less, of, I don't know, $15 a week, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, which is enough to save on, actually. But um, so I was aware of the computer. And, okay, there's a small story uh, that this thing was spitting out numbers every 10 minutes or whatever it was. And it was working on a program in real time and they suddenly realized oh we need the ratio between this thing and that thing mm. and that's not part of the program it's a fortran program that was taking in stuff in real time and so it's my job to um calculate this ratio with an early electric calculator yeah and i said well you know this is rounded which way is it rounded because we've got a numerator and a denominator, and they looked it up and they said, well, actually, it's rounded down mm. in every case. So I was a bit of a jackass, and I said, well, there's a bias then, because mm. you need you know, a number plus a constant on top and a number uh, plus a constant on the bottom, and just taking number over number will give you a bias. And they said, you're right. You do the work. How old are you? Um, so How old are you when this is happening? 18. 18. Yeah. 18, you're sort of having this sophisticated conversation with the computing people about bias? Well, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> uh, some people would summarize that as, you know, an early an early occasion in which I was a bit of a jerk and said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> so, uh -huh. yeah, in a minor way. I mean, it's just, it was just high school mathematics, really, just thinking about it. So you had so that's your first exposure to computing, and it was just yeah, that's right. Just being aware, it was in the context of statistics. Yeah, being aware that there was a physical, a hydrological experiment going on mm. with numbers and a computer, a computer in a big caravan. You know, they they just had this dedicated Hewlett Packard actually, and I don't know if it was custom built or what, but probably not. Mm. Uh, but it was, you know, it was the size of a big fridge hmm. well, what'd you think um, when you had that experience were you curious about computing that in you know yeah, i got books out of the library and i was just uh, i wasn't working at home i was working away from home but i you know signed up at the local library and got books on computing programming out and i i had a sense this is going to be what i will do uh yeah but just not now you know, when I my family moved from Mississippi, which is a very, very poor state in the United States at the bottom of the country, and uh, my dad uh, had a big, he had a computing company. This was like in the 80s. And a small town, personal computer seemed to be responsible for him losing a lot of contracts, local contracts with like, uh, you know, doing the county payrolls and all these things. And eventually he moves to Memphis. But I ended up um, getting into uh, running bulletin board systems. And, oh, uh, right. 
And so I became part of like online communities sort of early, early on in high school. And, you know, you're, you know, you're, this is kind of the, one of the directions I was just sort of wanting to go. Did you have uh, any sort of experience with like online communities, like uh, bulletin boards or Usenet or anything like that before you started spending a lot of time helping with the state of community? No, no. I mean, let's let's catch up uh, before we get there, as it were. Um, we were just using electric electronic calculators as undergraduates. My computing experience started when I started doing graduate work, and uh, there was then one mainframe, one mainframe uh, in the University of Durham. Period. Uh, but I was using Fortran to calculate things, so that was. We're now talking middle 70s, but that was long before there was any kind of uh, internet or even, you know, communities exchanging things. Uh, we didn't have email. Uh, right. Right. What about not, not within the university that came much later? What about in the academic department? Would you ever were you pro, when did you first start programming? 73. 73. 1973. You're in college. Yeah, I, I, when, when I started my, my PhD work. Um, so, yeah, just to explain, I, I didn't do a master's as such. Um, I've got a master's from Cambridge, but that's a ridiculous arrangement whereby you just pay a certain sum of money and you upgrade a BA to an MA. Wow. And if, any, if anybody else did this, uh, well, Oxford do the same thing. If anybody else did this, they'd say this is just utterly fraudulent. <laughs> but Cambridge and Oxford have been doing it for centuries that you can just get an MA by paying, I think it's £10, and they upgrade it. And uh, I can't defend it, but I paid £10 right. and I got my MA. But yeah. That was meaningless. But, but, but I just started on a PhD program uh, straight after my first degree and uh, started computing um, straight away, just writing silly little Fortran programs. But point of possibly of some interest is that the the university certainly had very statistical programs. Yeah. But none of them was programmable in any modern sense. I'm pretty sure they had SPSS. Oh. Uh, this is 19, I'm talking about 73. They had, they had SPSS, I think, and they had, I think they had SAS below that. Oh. That was stopped. Um, and... So you were using Fortran primarily. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. Because what I wanted to do, you know, there was no way you could program it in a statistical environment. You just had to use a mainstream programming language. Mm. Of course, if we if we jump forward 50 years from now, yeah, and we may get to this later in the conversation, there are now lots of people saying, oh, it's stupid learning a statistical environment because you should just be using a proper programming language. Right. Right. Uh, with all sorts of different interpretations about proper programming languages. Right. Well, anyway, 50 years ago, my, my move was the reverse that I had. Well, not the reverse. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's the same thing. I had to use a proper programming language. Yeah. Because there was no sense in which uh, you could program your own stuff right. in the software we had at the university. Yeah. Now, that was probably coming in terms of, say, S. When did S, S started up at Bell Labs? And that was certainly a, a programming language, a statistical flavor. That became R later, of course. So you but work with we S? Have access Are to you that. working with S 
do you start you start moving into the statistical software um, sticking with these i never used s as such it was never installed on our system i huh. i have used r occasionally yeah so you you're but it's it's clear that computing is going to be a central part is a central part of your career once you get into that doctorate that's going to be because you're you you've you're managing to bring together the stats and the geography in your in your PhD. Is that am I understanding correctly? Yeah, that's a good summary. Okay, and where do you go? Where do you end up doing your PhD? That was Durham. That's where I am now. I came here as a graduate student and then then just morphed into uh, morphed into faculty. Okay, okay. So so you 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 end up having this career as a geographer and uh you're you're your own programmer is that is that correct you're you're not necessarily uh you know you're 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 not using some software you're you're building your own your own uh you're building your own programming the whole time is that right uh, well, uh, okay, if we try and summarize about, uh, well, let's, let's say my history before Stator and after Stator, as it were. Let's divide it up like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll give a time point for people. I started using Stator in 1991. 91. So I've been using it now for 32 years. And, and Stator itself started in 1985, as some people will know. Mm. Okay, now before Stata, well, I was using various mainstream languages. I was writing in basics. A lot of people will have heard of basics. Yeah. I was I was using statistical packages as well. I used SPSS about twice. Minitab quite a lot. Of course, both of those are still going. Mm -hmm. Whether they're going strong is a different question I won't look at. But Minitab's still around. SPSS is still around. Um, I was using... You weren't using SAS? Midas. Pardon? You weren't using SAS? SAS, no, no. SAS, SAS has got a much bigger profile in the States than it does in Britain. Oh. I mean, there are people who use it in Britain, but it's it's not uh not I think nearly the standard in British universities. I could be wrong on that. But so you would you were you were using statistical software. You weren't just programming in Fortran. Absolutely. Yeah, I was right. Were you satisfied? Were you satisfied with your options back then? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, uh, your expectations are not very high. I mean, I started out with an environment, and what you did was you you submitted a job uh, on punch cards. So punch cards right. would be your data and your code. Yeah, and then later, you know. Well, Later, of course, it morphed to you could actually sit at a terminal and uh, type commands and so forth. Um, yeah. uh, that, that was a terminal that talked to a mainframe. I mean, I, I can remember the transition from a text editor in which you couldn't see the file <laughs> to yeah. a text editor in which you could actually see the file. You could see an image of the file on a, on a, you know, on a monitor. But the first text editors I used were these Unix type text editors where you say things like uh, on line one, you know, um, change this to this. On line five, well, delete line five, <laughs> and yeah. so forth. Insert after line six. So. But, you know, I started out with punch cards and then later, you know, well, that's that's a dead art now. Uh, 
uh, you know, being able to punch cars and correct punch cars and silly things like that. Right. But later, of course, we, we were using terminals, and then then you know a phase with a so-called mini computer, and then well, you know, using PCs, uh, even if those PCs are networked, which is what's been standard for what twenty years now. The PC, uh, PC, we used the PC in in college in the mid '90s, and my dad had a IBM PS2 Model Thirty. 1989 so but i i think my dad bought it on a lark he was sort of you know he had that computing company so he he was he bought it and then i used it but it was very uncommon but we did have in the or in i graduated high school in 1994 and i remember us all getting a vax and unix email account and there were personal computers on every in the dorms for printing out your papers so it would have been like right. 95 um, right. But nobody had, I, I didn't know anybody that had one. It just was at the school. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so 85 Stata comes out, 91. Um, yeah, that's when I started using it myself. Yeah. What happens? How how does that happen? Is it just one of okay, your mini well, machine, mini software that you're working through or what? Well, I was, um, I was doing what I've been doing most of my career, which is teaching statistics within geography. And I was always on the lookout for a good textbook. Mm. And there's a nice textbook by a guy called Larry Hamilton called Modern Data Analysis. It didn't get very far. Mm. Um, it never went into a second edition. Yeah. But I saw that he'd written a book called Statistics with Stata. And I'd had, I had to heard a little bit about Stata. And Statistics with Stata was available for about $20, I think. So, and I got a hold of that. Mm. And there were two disks, two five and a quarter inch disks with, with a cut down version of the software. Yeah. There's a good story about that, which I think I can make public. Because at the time, we took early 90s, it wasn't that unusual to get uh, books with disks with software. Yeah, You know, you bought a book and there was a disc with software. Now, often it was uh, just a kind of uh, sales pitch. And it was often, this is a token program. And for the real program, send money, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But anyway, it was it was a fully functioning uh, version of Stata. Mm. Uh, now, there are two twists. One is one was obvious at the time, wasn't, wasn't so obvious. The two-disc business was just a bit of cunning. Because the developers knew how to put it on one disk, but they thought if people see two disks, they're going to think, wow, two disks. That's what it was. So <laughs> it didn't need to be on two disks, oh. uh, but it was as you know, just a bit of marketing. Right. Anyway, it was a fully functioning version of Stata, but with one twist. You could only have 150 observations. So, you know, that's fair enough. They weren't going to give away the whole thing for free. Right. Now, it so happened that a particular data set that remains one of my favorites had 158 observations. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I've got a choice here. What's that data set? Either is, that I auto, find... is that the auto data set? No, no. Well, the auto data set has just got 74 observations. And that's been bundled with Stata since whenever. Now, yeah. This is a data set I wanted to you know, play around with, of my, uh, produced, produced, in fact, by my PhD supervisor. Uh -huh. And it got 158 observations. So I thought, well, I got a choice here. 
You couldn't get it on the hundred and fifty. Way of dropping eight observations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I could buy. Or I just buy the whole thing. Otherwise, <laughs> so, I could play with my favorite data set. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. So I so I uh, just sent off to California and uh, you know bought the whole thing, which was about two hundred dollars. So you'd never done that before. You had never had you had had you ever made that kind of investment with the other languages, or you just had a local license or something with the other languages like SPSS? Uh, that's a good question. I think I may have been buying some shareware things. Shareware is a thing that's more or less faded away, isn't it? But yeah, shareware. You remember. could get good text editors, you know, twenty pounds, twenty dollars, whatever. Uh, yeah. I did that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I did buy other things. Did buy other things. Some were a bad decision. but getting tied. I did... You're adopting because of the textbook? Is that why you're adopting? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the, the, the textbook uh, on statistics is data. I just like the look of it a lot. Mm. I just like the look of it. And the silly thing uh, at the time, which may be puzzling to anyone who wasn't around, was that most of the output was lowercase mm. because the the mainstream uh, or mainframe or the mainframe uh, statistics packages would mostly expect um, uppercase input and uh, produce uppercase output, mm -hmm. uh, but lowercase was becoming possible, and Stato was using lots of lowercase. So I thought this is. This is nice and subdued. It's not as if we were shouting at you. Uh, totally, yeah. And the language, the language makes uh, very heavy. You know, very very few commands, for example, make use of uh, yeah uppercase at all. And, um, I wonder what DOS used. What did DOS use? I can't if you need to input uppercase text as an argument, that's one thing. But the actual the actual command and option uh, syntax doesn't make heavy use of uppercase at all. Ah. Which is now standard, but it, it was a bit unusual at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've always thought that was really aesthetically nice too when I first saw Stata. I liked that. Uh, okay, so you get it. Now, again, I'm going to ask the question. At this time in 91, did you share your software that you had been written on Fortran? Would you like, you know, pass around, you know, reels or pass around? you know, uh, floppy disks to your colleagues? Were you sharing a lot of your programming products? Only locally, but uh, two things happened in 94. I think they were both 94, certainly one was, but that's good enough for, for anything but historical purposes. 1994, the company then called Computing Resources Center, later StataCore, the, the company started out a state of technical bulletin and the state of technical bulletin uh, came out every two months. And there was always a disk, now three and a half inch disk this time. Yeah. And that had, as it were, user written programs. So that was the way that people shared user written programs. Mm -hmm. That you sent them into, um, let's say, StataCore, even though it wasn't true at the time. You sent them into StataCore, and if, if they liked what you'd done, there'd, there'd be a little write up in the state of technical bulletin. Oh. And so that was running from 1994 to 2001. The other thing that was happening in, in 1994 was the Statalist started up. That started up? And that was an email-based uh, email discussion forum. And people were, you know, putting code in into mail. I mean, it was pretty awkward, but... <laughs> it was snail mail. You're putting, in 1994, you're doing a bulletin that's physical 
printed out? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a list server. You know, it's email based uh, forum, 1994. Based forum. Okay. And uh, um, board is it like a bulletin board or is it actually by email? No, you got it. You got email. You got email. If you were signed up to it, if if someone sent a message to the server, then that would be distributed to everyone on the list. Hmm. And so I don't know what the numbers were originally, but there'd be several email messages a day. The thing got moving fairly fast. Um, it's a very interesting origin, actually, at least to me. Uh, mm -hmm. What happened was that there was a, a medic uh, called David Wormuth, and he was doing some course at Harvard School of Public Health. And he said, let's have a, a mail list where people can ask data questions and answer data questions. Mm. And uh, one of the teachers at Harvard, who's still there, Marcello Pagano, said, yeah, we'll do this. Mm. And that carried on for 20 years. And uh, Wormuth was very emphatic. This, this should be independent of the company, right? You know, this should be users supporting each other. Mm. And uh, a lot of people thought that was a very important principle. In practice, uh, that became difficult to sustain, although it was, it was managed more or less for 20 years. This is the state of the state of the state of the state was then reinvented as a web forum, which is what people know now. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that 2014, a lot of people said, no, nah, I don't like this. And they dropped off. They preferred probably as part of their daily routine, they preferred, you know, just getting emails. Yeah, right. Deleting most of them straight away and then, you know, doing what they want. And they didn't like the kind of extra thing of, well, you've got to keep looking at a web forum to see what's, so, what's there. So you're thinking, so you're saying it was a, it was an email state. It was an email listserv in the mid 2000s. Right, right up to 2014. But was what I used. But, but, but first of all, there's still a thing called our help, which is organized in exactly the same way as if I understand it, <laughs> although it's faded away. But that was the main, you know, that was the main uh, way in which many uh, software communities ran, you know, through an email based uh, uh, list. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I was looking as it were over the fence at other communities. Uh, have you heard of, you've heard of Stack Overflow, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stack Overflow started out as a, you know, a web forum with a particular style and so forth. And then there were all sorts of other communities on the side of that. And the most interesting one to me is cross-validated, which is essentially a statistics forum. Mm -hmm. And I looked at Stack Overflow because a lot of people were saying on state list, this is just so old fashioned. It's ridiculous. Mm. And so you got people saying, oh, it's not broken. So we don't need to fix it. And other people were saying, this is ridiculous. We need a web forum. So I was looking at web forums and Stack Overflow just looked awfully complicated. I thought, this is awfully complicated. And there's a whole lot of things about badges and privileges. And you can edit other people's posts if you have a certain reputation. And you can oh, wow. you know, close posts unilaterally if you have a certain reputation and so forth. Mm. And so my initial reaction was too complicated. But then I looked at it and there were lots of state of questions on Stack Overflow, they were getting lousy answers. Sure. Or no answers at all. Right. So I thought, oh, so I dropped over the fence and started answering questions there. And you, when when Statalist was but, having discussions about changing, I said, well, you know, I think 
a web forum is the right idea. And other people agreed, which is why it happened. Wait, so who's you know, a group about but y'all, I guess something about the listserv was dissatisfying. You guys, well, I mean, you guys uh, had if, you, if you're just if you're just exchanging emails, then it's a pretty poor way of showing code. Oh yeah, of showing showing data examples. Yeah, and it's it's, it's useless. It's just useless for graphs. Gah, right. So right. Um, that that was why most people said, yeah, we ought to bite the bullet and become a web forum. Well, so um, Sean, did you, I mean, you know, I'm kind of tipping my hand a little bit here, but you know, you become a real prominent figure uh, in the state of list serve. Was that from the very beginning you sort of were, you know, becoming pretty prominent on that list serve and beyond just simply someone chatting? Uh, well, from fairly early, I mean, I, I, I wasn't there at the start, and I can't answer that question because, uh, in real accuracy, because the the emails from about the first decade have all disappeared. Oh no! Uh, way. But that doesn't really matter because I wouldn't want to read them all again. Um, but what? no, from from about they're gone. Nobody from about knows. middle nineties, I was I was pretty active on Statelist. Yeah, it just just grew. How come? What what is it about this that's drawing you in? Because you become it becomes a real is it well okay is it becoming your community? Are you finding yourself making friends on the state of listserv? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, very much so. Who were some and of your other thing that's important to this? Sorry, who were some of your your early friends that that uh that are you know that, that you became like they became kind of friends friendships with you? Uh, well, okay, it. it there's really, although it's quite different in terms of organization, there's really a seamless web because what Stato were doing from the middle 90s was holding user meetings. Oh. And so I'd be meeting people. The very first one was actually in London. Mm. Uh, and the, the company was then in Texas. You know, it started out in California, but it moved to Texas where it still is in College Station. Yeah. And College Station is actually, well, I mean, you, you know, College Station, you're, you're, you know, you're, I don't know what it is, a couple of hours drive away. Yeah. Uh, now, College Station is a great place to uh, work in many ways and to bring up a family, but it's a lousy place for a conference. Conference, yeah. So, whereas right. London, uh, yeah. in contrast, is a great place for a conference, uh, right. you know, right. not just for people in the UK. Yeah, uh, but people, you know, in in nearby countries of Europe or mainland Europe. Um, so the first state of meeting was in London in 1995. So I was meeting people, you know, at these meetings, and oh. the meetings in the states started out late 90s. Did you after. organize those initial meetings? Were you the part of the organizer of those initial meetings? I yeah I I. I didn't organize the first uh, London meeting, but I started organizing them, helping to organize them um, from about 1997 or so, I guess. What was their purpose? Usually every other year. I know what their purpose is more now, but what was it in the beginning? Just to meet people in person? Well, usually Stata Corps people would turn up and they would talk about what was happening with Stata. Mm. And you could you could you could certainly say uh, you know what I think is wrong, what I think state core ought to do, and so on and so forth. Mm. And uh, you know the answer was usually we'll think about that. 
Um, yeah, but but most of the most of the business was users talking about their work, and mm. it quickly became people talking about the program as they were writing. You know, uh, mm. application talks where people just say, "Well, I'm using SADA for this bit of economics research or medical statistics research." Mm. They, they, they've always been a minority thing. It's usually been users talking about new commands that they publish, new packages that they've written. Do you remember any any package that I would hear I would have heard of that you saw sort of appear that's now kind of become like a a, a major part of the of the software? What what's one of those that you remember? Well, there was a very impressive talk by Sophia Ray Pesketh, who's now at uh, Berkeley, but she was then working at one of the London universities, and she gave a talk on uh, GLAM, you know, G-L-L-A-M-M, -M, mm -hmm. which was a pretty amazing uh, program that did all sorts of mixed models and so forth. Now, mm. Stater have implemented in that rather different sort of way. I mean, uh, the, when I say Stater have implemented, I mean the company. Yeah. The company always has a kind of longer-term perspective on things. Mm. And whereas an academic wants a program, you know, tomorrow or even better yesterday. Yeah. Uh, the company sort of, you know, moved more and more towards sort of projects that may take about four years or so forth. I mean, the, the recent stuff on tables where tables are rejigged. I think that took two releases to work through that. Oh, oh, oh. And, and I just think and the, the company are thinking more and more about what do we want to do that academics can't do? The company was. Yeah, yeah, because the whole point is that the company is not trying to write everything. Right. I mean, you take something like meta-analysis, which is, well, it's a bigger deal on uh, on the medical side than the economic or social science side. It's not like meta-analysis. The users are actually doing great stuff, and uh, the company, as it were, let that settle down before sort of folding folding it back into uh, the official release. Right. And then stuff like, uh, well, this is getting pretty close to your territory, I think, difference in difference and all that sort of stuff and causal inference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a good phrase for you. Yeah. Um, the company is getting into that, but they were, as it were, seeing, um, seeing what users were doing and seeing how the field developed because um. you know, there's no point in in academics saying, oh, you should do X, and the company doing it, and they say, oh, well, no, X was last year's thing. So they would use Everyone's the list. Everyone's now doing this. They'd use the, they would use the listserv in the meetings, or not the, yeah, they would use the listserv in the meetings to get a feel for where the where the various trends were coming. And where and Absolutely, was. you got it one. You know, what, what do people want to do? Okay. And what are they doing fine by themselves? And what does the company want to get interested in? And the, the interesting thing is to me that the company are just like a bunch of academics. Uh, right, right. Because sometimes you say, why didn't you do such and such? And they say, well, that sounds good, but I don't think anyone in the company really wants to work on that. Yeah. And part of you is thinking, the community needs this. Right. And part of you think, well, these developers, they're just, I mean, they're usually people who, uh, you know, they got PhDs and, you know, good masters and so forth, they just turned left and went into uh, business. But mm. they're like academics. They, you know, they work on what interests them and they, right. they won't do something just because, uh, just because someone says, oh, you know, this is hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Be an interest. Yeah. Nick, uh, 
it is top of the hour. I want to make a proposal. Could we do a part two? Because I think in the opening to this interview, I'm going to be saying a lot of flattering stuff about you, about your a big part of, I think I told you by email, you're a monumental part of the story of, uh, of economics. And I think even all the way down from the graduate students, you know, at least my cohort all the way up to the Nobel laureates would, would absolutely say that. And I was wondering, could we do a part two? I haven't actually done a part two. I did maybe one part two with Alberto Abadi, but would it be okay if we do this? Cause I, I, I want to keep these in a, in an hour as much as possible. Cause people kind of drop off, but could we do another part two? Yeah, absolutely. Just send me uh, some suggestions for a time. Okay, great. Well, this is really fun. Um, uh, are this you is, thinking this week, or are you thinking next week, or something? We could do we could do this week, or we could do next week. I'll 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 send you my calendar, and you tell me what you want to do. Okay, that sounds good. Great. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. And I'll see. We'll we'll be back uh, soon. Okay. You gotta see us through.